0: Welcome to Sports Lit. I am Nate Sager. And I'm Neil Acharya. Thank you, Neil. Today we are joined by someone who reported on hockey with a lot of jam. Al Strachan spent close to four decades covering the sport as an irascible insider who cultivated a contacts list longer than the NHL guide and record book. After starting out at the Windsor Star in the early 70s, he became a hockey writer at the Montreal Gazette, and then the Globe and Mail and the Toronto Sun when it had a sports section that could have been a standalone daily. In 1993, Al won the Hockey Hall of Fame's Elmer Ferguson Award, which is given each year to one scribe whose words have brought honor to journalism and hockey. Now today, who is first on a breaking NHL story can come down to a matter of seconds on social media. But Strack was sometimes weeks ahead of the pack. His new book is Hockey's Hot Stove, The Untold Stories of the Original Insiders, which is forthcoming from Simon & Schuster, Canada, it's a chronicle of his years on the CBC's Hockey Night in Canada. Al was part of the Satellite Hot Stove show within the show that aired in the second intermission of national Saturday night telecasts. If uh, Strack ever straddled the fence on an issue, oh, I never saw it, I must have been not watching that week. The insiders balanced packing indispensable information for serious hockey fans into eight and a half minutes, but did it without taking themselves too seriously. Uh, now, of course, with, even before COVID, we're used to seeing a screen with like four different faces on it, but it was novel at the time. The panelists would often be, you know, double, triple or quadruple box because they were recording from different cities with a dependence on the oft dodgy 1990s tech. But Strachan and the other panelists, such as John Davidson or Jim Houston, they always came across as just four knowledgeable fans talking hockey in a rec room as they looped fans in on league storylines. And they had a lot to talk about in the 90s and early aughts when the NHL was going through some growing pains with uh, Gary Bettman's southern strategy. Uh, Satellite hot stove, it was good TV, Neil, and it probably built a template for intermission panels we see on all telecasts today, not not just in hockey. Al had a vital role in that, Neil.
1: Yes, the race to break news, to be first out with a trade, signing, hiring, firing, or to verify the fanned flames of speculation is the role of the insider. These days hockey fans find out most of their current info from Bob McKenzie, Darren Dreger, Elliot Friedman and Chris Johnson and others by refreshing their Twitter feed. But prior to social media, the insiders reigned supreme on the printed page and then TV. In terms of TV, as you said, one of the best places to find out what was happening and what was about to happen was the satellite hot stove on Hockey Night in Canada. The intermission segment, which brought together a panel of insiders to share opinions and argue about the latest happenings in the league, was part of the triumvirate that completed the Hockey Night in Canada package in the 1990s. That went along with Coach's Corner and, of course, the game itself. It's the brainchild of executive producer John Shannon, and and Satellite Hot Stove was born during the NHL lockout in 1994. Now, it's the main subject of the book you mentioned by Al Strachan, Hockey's Hot Stove the untold stories of the original insiders. This explains the origins of the program and his fulfilling, Al's fulfilling experiences working with fellow writers, broadcast colleagues and producers. Al is what you call a full contact journalist. Like the multitude (laughs) of players he covered over the years, he's not afraid to antagonize and call things as he sees them. And so in this book he also addresses his departure from the program both times, uh, the last which occurred in October 2010, I believe. Uh, One may wonder why people care so much about a segment and why an entire book can be devoted to it. So I'll bring you back to season two, episode five of Sports Lit, where we spoke to Dave Schultz about Hockey Fight in Canada, the book which covered the battle for the rights for the program, uh, for, sorry, for Hockey Night in Canada. He told us um, his Globe and Mail columns uh, about why Hockey Night in Canada uh, or what Hockey Night in Canada was doing and any news about that program, uh, he said it always moved the dial. Without question, the program was and still is a cultural institution. Um, Al was there while the cameras were rolling and more importantly for the case of this book when they weren't. <laughs> so like the game he covered, he was in good p- good position uh, to weave this story together. Today we welcome Al Strachan from his home or one of his homes. In Florida. <laughs> All right. All right, we're back on Sports Lit with Hall of Fame hockey journalist Al Strachan. And Al, um, we talked about the ha- Satellite Hot Stove extensively in the intro, so um, for those that don't know about the Satellite Hot Stove, what was the format and how did the cast of characters make it click?
2: we sort of bounced off each other a lot and we're all good friends the format was that we would get together just before the show, usually because we had other jobs. We were mostly journalists, or in the case of John Davidson, he was the uh, broadcaster for the Rangers, and uh, Jim Houston was off in different time zones, so we'd get together and very briefly talk about what we had to do. This was in the initial format. Later on, when it became much more formal, and we got away from the screens quite as much, and we got away from being in all the different cities. Then and we had a bit more time to do it and it was much more formal and structured but in the original format this was it so we didn't have a lot of time and we often didn't really know what we were going to talk about and certainly not in the format and as John pointed out John Shannon being the guy who put it all together as John pointed out we were never told what to say and nobody ever knew how we were gonna say it and usually that included ourselves so as a result there was a lot of interaction going on. There were interruptions occasionally between the people and people speaking over each other but John thought that was fine because he said the whole concept should be an interaction between the people on TV and the people watching it on TV and it was just as if you were sitting in a bar which you and I have done on occasion Neil <laughs> and uh, people are talking and somebody speaks over someone else and uh, and that's the way it happens and then you go on and the person who either shouts aloud is or persists gets to make his case, and that was the informality of the whole show. And I think that had a lot to do with making it successful because the people sitting there watching it, we hoped, almost felt that they were a part of it.
0: And what was it about the NHL in that era? I guess between the two first, I guess between the first two lockouts, ninety four to two thousand five, that kept you and the insiders so busy. And, uh, you know, and how does that maybe compare to how league business has been conducted in more recent times?
2: It changed a lot after that because what happened was that the first major lockout, the one that shut down the league for a year, resulted in the NHL seizing pretty much all the power. The NHL Players Association continued to exist, but it had been a very powerful entity before that. And after that, it no longer was. So the league was able to control what the players were saying and access to those players from the media. Before that, we had pretty well unfettered access. We could go in before the games even, and although we rarely bothered because there wasn't a lot, they would say, before the games that was going to impact what you were going to write half an hour later or an hour later or two hours later, whatever it may be, and especially because the morning skates were all open, so if you really wanted anything, you'd have got it in the morning, and that would have been taken care of. But after the game, you went in and you talked to all the players who were sitting around and uh, in various states of undress and uh, (laughs) they would answer your questions and uh, you could usually get one alone in most cities not always Toronto was always a zoo but in other places you can get a player or if you knew him which was often the case you could call him aside and And you could often arrange to go out with them afterwards, go for a beer or two. They would often suggest it, and often I would suggest it, but it wasn't uncommon. In fact, it was quite common to go out for a beer or two with players after the game. Well, All that changed when Gary took over, partly because they were on such a tight schedule in many cases, and, and instead of hanging around in a city and going out for a beer, the players were on the plane, and they had... 45 minutes to get out of the building they, they were told so that didn't leave them a lot of time to talk to us that was one of the things but areas of the dressing room were closed off and the only part that was available was available often on a limited basis and so in the major cities when a player would come out there'd be a rush of people like lemmings towards these players (laughs) and uh, you couldn't really get anything personal and then the other factor of course was uh, the development of uh, cell phones and uh, podcasts not that yours is (laughs) problem, but there were people who just took upon themselves to say that they had a podcast and they needed access and and these people really were rarely heard of. They were just fans who got a chance to get into a dressing room. So the league responded by bringing out one player at a time instead of having the whole team sitting around and then they would all give the same answers basically. We had to cut down their time and space and yes, I was happy about scoring five goals tonight and that sort of thing. And then off you go. So the whole thing changed, and it was partly the National Hockey League, I think, doing it. It was partly the advent of technology, and it was partly the breaking of the NHL Players Association. And if you want to go into that, that's a whole separate <laughs> topic, but I'm willing to discuss it if you're interested in it. But it really didn't have a lot to do with hot stove.
1: Sure. I mean, if, yeah, I mean, feel free. Yeah, go ahead. I mean... Yeah, I mean we can well, set you up it, on it, but go ahead if you yeah, if you're ready right now. Yeah, yeah
0: take us back to like yeah, well, 5.
2: it it's it's a thing that hasn't been discussed an awful lot and it's something that I think probably would make A rewarding book for the writer and a rewarding book for the people who are interested in such things, namely the agents and the NHL officials and maybe a few players, but I don't think it would really be a bestseller because people I don't think really care an awful lot about it this many years after the fact, because you know about 15 now roughly. But what happened prior to that lockout was that Bob Goodnow went to every team in the league and had a meeting with every single one of them. In many cases, they weren't allowed to meet in the building. That was the nature of the animosity in those days. Well, most, I'd say probably half, I guess, of the general managers said, yeah, okay, you got to meet them after the morning skate. Uh, some of them, however, said, y- you know, we- you work out some other time. The morning skate is our time, and we need to talk to our players afterwards. Some of them said, you're not going to do it in our building. You better go and find a nearby restaurant or hotel or something. But whatever the problems may have been, Bob No went around with a couple of his assistants in order to answer questions and spoke to every team in the And he gave them all the same speech. He said, look, here's what's going to happen. We are going to be locked out if you want to go after what you want. And what you want and what you really, really need is a new contract without any form of salary cap. Because if you get a salary cap, that means that every year thereafter, players will take less money. They'll take a smaller share of the money because every year the league will say, well, we need, what, this plus 1%, this plus 2%, this plus 3%, whatever it is. But whatever it may be, it's it's going to mean that they're going to take more money in every negotiation and you're going to get less. And you can't have that. You can't let them structure your salaries. So it's going to cost you though because the first year is going to be a problem we are going to have to be out for the whole year they won't respond until we've missed a year and we're missing the next training cap that should be clear and everybody should understand that And after about maybe a month or so the first time they've blocked us out your wives are going to say, you know, my credit card, uh, they're saying that, uh, you know, I'm getting near the limit and, you know, I don't really want to spend, what do you think, maybe you should go back? And you're going to have to say, no, no, I'm not, I'm not going back. And then by Christmas, you're going to want to meet with your family and uh, your dad's going to get you in the kitchen over a beer and he's going to say, you know, son, you make more in a year than I made in my whole life pretty well. Don't you think you should really go back? And your mom and I think you should go back, you know. And, and don't forget, you know, that it's going to cause you a lot of problems and people aren't going to like it. And and Bob said, and that's another pressure. So that's the second time you're going to have to say, no, no we we're not going back. We're going to have to be out the entire year. And then he said to the players, Now we need total support for this and you have to understand this. And if you don't understand this and if you're not ready to go out for a full year, then don't. Let's get this thing settled now and we'll make a deal, but you say you are. And so they had to vote and it was about ninety eight point five percent or something of the people of the players said, Yeah, we'll do this. We've got the resolve, we'll stick up. Well, the problem was that by January, a lot of the agents were getting upset because they're not getting any money, and they've got offices to run, and they've got staff there, and and they're getting nothing because the players are getting nothing. So they start agitating with their players to say, look, you know, Bob's leading you astray here. And then some of them, um, I think some of those names have been in the paper, but some of them then went to New York, and spoke to Gary and said, you know, what can we do about this? And the response was, well, you have to get a no. So, they stabbed No in the back. They got rid of him around the February. They told him his services would no longer be wanted. And ever since then, the NHL's Player association has not been powerful. During the time that Bob Goodenough was there, the salary went from 190000 a year average to $1.9 nine million. Or Ten times in the years that he was there. And since then, it hasn't really gone up much. It's just pretty much the same. And the players have less authority, and they take a, a, a smaller cut every year, and there's all this escrow, and they have to do what they're told by the league. They can't go and chat with the media anymore, among other things. But that's, that's what happened. And the Players Association today is just a shell. It's really a shambles. And, uh, there's, you know, I, I've given you the basic story there. There are more specifics to go with it. But that's essentially what happened. And so when all that happened, then the treatment of the players towards the media all changed because um, a a lot of the media, it must be said, were on the side of the ownership. In fact, the majority of them were on the side of the ownership during that that lockout. I mean, I'll go back, you greedy buggers, you know, and so on and so forth. (laughs) And so a a lot of animosity was developed between the media and the players, and uh, it's not easy to, to get rid of it. So.
0: And in your opinion, in the 15 years since then, what's having a salary cap done to enjoyment of the game? I'm thinking of a couple of friends of mine who say it now it it punishes the teams that draft and develop well because then, you know, they have to sign their best players at you know, the market rate. And then they kind of get beat up on the back end like like the Chicago Blackhawks uh, popped to mind there. Yeah,
2: yeah, you get you get punished for for being a good team, and the Blackhawks were one of the more obvious examples. But it happens to all of them. You you can't keep your players around, and you know you you can't necessarily make players happy. And and you get all of these players now. Whenever it's salary time for the bigger names, the first thing that is suggested is you give the hometown break if you want to stay with this team. Well, why should you give them a hometown break? Why should they come out of your pocket? You know, if if you're a $8 million player, why should you sign for $6 million just because your team is up against the wall on the salary cap? And from a fan's point of view, why should you risk losing that player? You've supported him. You've supported the team. He wants to be there. But he's not going to be there because of gary's salary cap because they can't afford to keep the good players and the argument of the people who are in favor of it is that well if it weren't for the salary cap the small teams wouldn't survive well the small teams did pretty well before the salary cap edmonton it seems to me won five stanley cups in seven years and uh, if you looked at the the last three years before the shut down the year that shut down the final four in those three years there were 12 different teams so everybody was taking their turn you still could be a good team you had to rely on your own ability to sign people to scout them and all that sort of thing and now you've become you have to hire a capologist to do all these things you can't really encourage people with bonuses that much because a bonus counts as part of the salary towards the salary cap figures so you can't say, well, you know, here you go. We'll give you two million and a six million dollar bonus. Well, none of that. And so you get all these strange things that have to be done, where where they front end some of these things. I think they've cut back on this little trick where mm-hmm. you're going to give a guy, say, thirty million over three years. So you give him. Uh, nine, nine, and nine, and then you put him on one million for the next fifteen years when he's retired and all that sort of thing, just so you balance out the average for the salary cap. What, what do you think is Austin Matthews' uh, salary at the moment? <laughs> no
0: idea. <laughs> yeah. It's about it's
2: about seven hundred thousand. I'm not sorry, not Austin Matthews, John Tavares, rather. Right. It's somewhere in the neighborhood of seven hundred thousand a year. <laughs> the rest of it is in various bonuses right. and other things, all these things, structural things they have to do, and to to find a way to get him eleven million dollars. You know, it's just it, it's become an accountant's game rather than the fans' game.
1: So. Right, and 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 I think I've I've seen you, uh, and I think we brought this up in a previous podcast uh, quote of yours, which is you know the uh, the league has turned hockey fans into accountants. Um, yeah, and and also I mean in terms of I was gonna segue into this next question but i will ask you just because it's it's topical um how do you think that changed reporting uh just with all these numbers and and, and cap figures i mean uh uh writers generally weren't known as as math wizards i think that's a lot of a lot of the reasons why we, we ended <laughs> Not up known getting as
2: wizards <laughs> in any area I
1: mean <laughs> yeah. <that right> <laughs> yeah, exactly um so so yeah do you think it it changed the way uh reporting worked and did you have to have a new crop of journalists with different skill sets coming in that kind of knew this stuff.
2: Uh, I, I think it changed the approach, not necessarily that you needed a different skill set. I think one of the strange things about the job always was that people thought that you had to be a great sports fan and know all the statistics going back 20 years and everything. Well, no, you, you didn't really because the statistics were always there for you. What you had to do, you had to be a, a, a bit of a doctor to know the difference between ACL and an MCL. You had to be a bit of a travel agent. To get yourself from one city to the next, and you had to be a, a bit of a psychologist, and a, you know, you had to all these other things that you had to do, and you know, a fairly decent writer, obviously, and do it fairly quickly, and, and that sort of thing. But you didn't really have to know an awful lot about sports. You could find that out from the people who were in it, and then, and the, I always used to do that, you know. And if I were watching a, an NHL. Final, especially the finals, but earlier some of the other ones, and and a team would be doing something, and I'd call a a friend of mine, a coach, or a general manager, or somebody that wasn't involved, and I'll say, what are they doing? How are they doing this? And I'd get all this, and then I would write it, and people say, well, you must really know the game. I don't know the game. I just know the people who do know the game, and and you pass that along. So, um, But then now, especially, I think probably the best city to look at as an example of this is is Edmonton. For some reason, the Edmonton writers are unable to evaluate anyone without looking at money. And and these stories will say, well, you know, he's he's earning four hundred thousand dollars per ten assists or something like that. <laughs> Everything is all worked out for money. And the point is, you're not paying any of it. Right. So. Don't worry about how much he's earning, but it does affect the fans, as you were saying. In the sense that if you want to evaluate a trade, you don't look at the players anymore. You don't trade a a winger for a goalie or anything like that. You trade a cap for a cap, a contract for a contract, and and that's what you have to do. And so when a player becomes available, a fan might look at it and say, boy, he would look good on my team. And now a fan looks at it and says, oh, well, we can't fit his salary into our salary cap because we're near the limit and we would have to move somebody else at his salary to get the salary and so on. And you know, why should you have to do that? It's it's taken away from the evaluation part of the game and turn people into accountants, as we said.
1: Uh in terms of in terms of this book, I've I've read and heard different things about what constitutes an insider and where the term originated in regard to hockey media. Yeah. So was that part of the reason you know the, the subheading includes original
2: Um
1: the, the untold no, stories of well, the original. Well, maybe, insiders. I don't know.
2: I, the thing, what people don't realize is that the writer doesn't have anything to do with the, right. with the title or of the book. Picture. Or the picture. i got on. so much trouble for why the leaves suck, <laughs> I have nothing to do with calling it why the leafs suck. <laughs> you know? Right. But, um, yeah, I think it is, because the original, I mentioned in the book, as far as I know, and I, I would be corrected if, uh, if anybody knew more about this, but as far as I know... The insider term was first applied to a series of columns that were on the back page of the Globe and Mail Sports section in the 80s, and the back page would be divided into usually three blocks, maybe four, and the specialists from the sports would write about their sports, and it would be a little notes column, and it was labeled the insiders and uh, I think that's the first time I ever heard of it, and um, there was often lots of good little bits in there, and uh, the Globe and Mail in those days, when I started at the Globe and Mail in 1980, there were 44 people on staff, I think there are three today, and uh, so they had four, uh, racing writers, you know, <laughs> horse racing, right. and uh, they else that a lot of people who sat around doing nothing, you know, <laughs> you know what they say in business that twenty uh, percent of the people do eighty percent of the work. Well, that was certainly the case <laughs> at the Globe, <laughs> yeah. but but it was a good good time, and and it was a very good product, a very very good product in those days, and and that's as far as I know. That's where the insiders came from, and then John Shannon saw all of this going on especially in the hockey area obviously and then thought why am, am I having to read this on Saturday morning and uh, or, and it's it's not on our show on saturday night and and there's all this stuff and then read uh he also liked kevin dupont the boston globe so i read him on sunday morning and there's more stuff we didn't have last night so why is it that we've got a hockey show but none of this stuff is in it and it's all the stuff that people are interested in and so that's how that came about
1: um yeah i thought that was a really interesting part in the book um in a, in a TSN article titled Five Minutes with Bob McKenzie, he is quoted as saying, I always thought of myself as a hockey writer. I always thought of myself as having reporter sensibilities. And I bring that up because as media has morphed into one umbrella under digital, do you view yourself in that light as a writer? Because you spent, uh, di- you know, a long time, decades in front of the camera, you know, with the score and uh, obviously with the hot stove. So a lot of people may know you as the TV person, but do you go back to like Bob Viewing yourself as the writer first?
2: It's interesting that he would say that. He's a good friend, Bob McKenzie. uh, At one time, we had a little complex of four desks there in the Globe and Mail, and he had one of them. And uh, then the Globe and Mail, first time, they actually started to cut back a little bit, and Bob got cut back. And he was out of work, and he was about two weeks away from joining the Toronto Police Force when he got an offer to uh work for the hockey news i don't know if i should be telling you all this but anyway we'll, we'll it's all take true. it Al. We'll no take reason it. why it shouldn't <laughs> and huh
1: no i said we'll take it out please share
2: no it was, I, I don't think there's any problem with it you know right and uh so then when he got to the hockey news then he as part of his job uh, was he was the an editor type you know not, didn't do much writing. But he had to talk to people in all the cities. So every week, Bob would talk to people in all the NHL cities who were writing the articles for the hockey news. And so Bob became one of the most conversant people in the known world with all this hockey knowledge, and and he then morphed into becoming a writer. But I don't think he necessarily saw himself as a hockey writer when he was at the Globe, but maybe he did. I mean, if he says that, I guess he did. He'd come down from, uh, what was he, in the Sioux, I think, before that? Yeah, somewhere yeah, up so, there. yeah the Sioux star. And, uh, and I think he covered the juniors up there, but he, he wasn't, covering much hockey at the globe because he was just a junior and they had about eight hockey writers ahead of him because as i said they had 44 people Uh, but uh, you know it's whatever you evaluate yourself as i guess i evaluate myself as a writer more than a tv person but really, I just evaluate myself in those days, not anymore, as being a part of the hockey community. I always felt at home there, and uh, in one of the books I did, I made the analogy of the NHL to being like a a village of maybe a couple of thousand people, and everybody knows everybody if you're really in that village. And and if you're one of the main hockey writers working for a, a larger paper, and you do the travel, so that these guys see you home and away because uh, you know, just seeing them in their own city uh, is, doesn't mean that much but you see them in your city as well and uh, you get calls from them on occasion and you have the ability to read what they write and you sort of accept it as being useful and uh, authentic then you become a part of that community and everybody gets to know you just like they would in any small village and the people who don't travel, the sports writers would be more like maybe a repairman coming in from a nearby village to come and fix your fridge or something. He's useful to have around, but he's not really part of your community. And I always thought I was part of the the hockey community because I could talk to presidents or general managers or coaches or assistant coaches or players or trainers. And, uh, and, you know, I, I knew the names of trainers in the city and say hello to them and they knew me and they said hello to me and that sort of stuff. And I would Occasionally, especially when the hot stove got rolling a bit, I'd go into a, a room and I'd have players say hello to me, and I didn't know who they were. <laughs> and you know, usually it's the other way around for the media; they, you know, they they go and talk to players. The players don't know who they are. But uh, uh, and it was it gets to be different. And you get to be. I just felt I was really a part of the of the whole community, yep. and uh, rather than identify myself as either uh, written or uh, visual media,
1: and that hockey village pub was the best around too. Um,
0: <laughs>
2: yeah. Well, there were a lot of pubs in that village, <laughs> <laughs> and they all stayed open late. <laughs> yeah. and in
0: writing about that that era and being in that community, what was what was more fun to write about when you were putting the, you know formatting this book—the behind the scenes stuff, a satellite hot stove, or some of those you know, sports writer travel stories that anyone who's traveled to cover sports inevitably has?
2: There there was a whole range of them, really. I mean, the thing I miss the most is the the camaraderie with the other media guys and some of it with the players. But um, we would go out for dinners, uh, especially on the night before a game and the bigger events and uh, and. We all had um, a lot of good food, spent a lot of time there. You know, we'd be talking about a two-hour dinner or whatever. And then the Canadian guys would all go out to the pub afterwards and have more beers. And I always thought that everybody did it until one point. I was, we were somewhere. I think, I think it was Los Angeles or something. And, then, and there were a couple of Americans, and we're all in the parking lot there. And I said, are you guys going to go to this place? No, no. He said, we're not. So why not? well have you ever noticed it's only the canadians that do that (laughs) and i hadn't noticed that but i guess it was but that's what we used to do and i've close friends all over the hockey community but especially the ones in canada because we spent so much time together so those are the kind of memories and as for any one given story i don't know that there is one but we used to tell stories and it was mostly what had happened lately or your involvement with a a player or a general manager or something like that and the reactions and uh, we did exchange a lot of stories uh, that were gossip I guess that we all understood would would not see the light of day in a newspaper because they were the kind of things that you just didn't put (laughs) out there but um, we we all knew them. Uh,
1: Al uh, earlier on, I, I had asked you to to read a, a passage. I was wondering if you had that uh, nearby.
2: Yeah, I do. Yeah.
1: So yeah, go ahead and and uh, and read it, and then after I will uh, follow up and feel free to insert anything into that passage that you may that may need clarity.
2: Yeah, well, I will just mention that this was a time I, I've mentioned in the book and mentioned to anybody who knows that. One of the drawbacks of that lifestyle is that it's hard to maintain a marriage because you travel so much, and when you're away, the wife has to take care of everything. And then when you come back and you start trying to take care of things, and she's, you know, do I I really need this? You know, and uh, so. My wife and I split up amicably in 1996, and uh, we're still good friends, and she edits everything that I do. She worked for the Montreal Gazette as an editor, and so she's a very capable coffee editor. And she's ideal to have as a coffee editor, because you write something and you send it off to somebody that you don't know, and they say, oh yeah, it's good, it's good. And it may not be. but. When it's your wife (laughs) and you write it off, you send it, that's absolute drivel. What are you writing that for? You can do better than that. And why would you say this when really, you know? And so so she keeps me on my toes, and I really appreciate that. And uh, she... um, well, we were talking like yesterday, I think, or the day before. But we we're still very good friends, and she lives in England, and uh, we have our two sons that we communicate with. One of whom's in London, one's in Boston, and uh, but it, we just sort of drifted apart because it it had been about 25 years, and when you think about it, you know, over 25 years, do you still? like the same kind of food. You still like the same kind of music. You still watch the same kind of TV shows and so on. You change and, and your life changes. And, and we changed and uh, we just went in different directions. She had been a great hockey fan at one point and then she got away from it, I think perhaps because of a bit of resentment as to what it was doing to me and that it was taking over my life. And, and people call all the time when you're doing that. You know, And I can't control what time people call, and some of them call at strange hours, you know, and uh, some general manager calls, and, uh, you know, he's in a bar somewhere in a different time, zone. what are you going to do? Say, oh no, no, give me a call tomorrow, and you talk to him. You might have been in the middle of dinner or something, and uh, so there there were problems, but anyway, as I say, we're still very good friends, but at the time that this happened, we were, going to look for a house for her in Kingston. She eventually decided she'd rather live in England than in Kingston, Ontario, and but this is the time frame. This is set. So. <clears throat> Following the afternoon taping of Hot Stove and the Gretzky discussion, we drove to the Kingston area where some of her relatives lived, planning to look at some houses the next day. It was about midnight and we were asleep when the phone rang in our motel room. It's done, the voice said. I called a son and dictated a story. Although the deal had yet to be filed with the league, the negotiations appeared to be complete. Gretzky would go to St. Louis. In exchange, Patrice Tardif, Roman Vopat, Craig Johnson, and a 1997 first round draft pick would go to the Los Angeles Kings. On Sunday, we looked at houses near Kingston and even put in an offer on one. In a free moment, I called Gretzky. Go to Winnipeg, he said. We're playing there tomorrow night. There are still some parts to be arranged. Off to Winnipeg I went, and when I met him in the dressing room after the game, Wayden did something he had never done before. He told the rest of the media, I'll be back, then said to me, let's go outside. We left the dressing room and went to the players' bench. The arena was virtually empty by then, so he walked down to the far end and signaled to those who followed that they should not come into the bench area. He filled me in on a few of the aspects of the negotiations, then said, i am not going on with the kings to tampa i'm going home you should go to vancouver are you going to stay at the bay shore as usual i assured him that i would that was where i always stayed in vancouver and that was the site of the blues next game i'll call you there in the afternoon he said the next day the deal was officially announced by the two teams by that time a fifth round draft pick had been added sam mcmaster the king's general manager having read the details of the trade in the Sunday Sun didn't like the fact that the article was totally accurate. So he demanded that a fourth round draft pick be incorporated just to make the Sun story wrong. (laughs) Mike Keenan, general manager of the Blues, refused to go higher than a fifth rounder, and McMaster begrudgingly conceded. So when you read the details of the trade now, you'll see that it involves two draft picks rather than one, which was the original deal. Sure enough, While I was in Vancouver, Wayne called and filled in all the details. His unhappiness with the Kings had been focused on the team's refusal to add some quality players, and in the process, increase the payroll. He had been promised in August that the team would follow that pattern, but when they hadn't done it by January, he started agitating for a trade. He felt that he had done his bit to help the Kings' financial situation by deferring part of his salary, but the team hadn't lived up to its obligations. I deferred close to 70% of my salary, he told me. Here's a guy, King's owner of Philip Onshoots, who just got a check for $1 billion in a Los Angeles land deal, who paid $115 million for the franchise, and who's talking about a new stadium for $250 million, and he asked me to defer my money. I said, no problem, and I did it. And for people to say that the trade was just over money, it was ridiculous. That part hurt me the most. Next afternoon, he called again. You want to go for a sandwich? He asked. (laughs) As my waistline testifies, I rarely turn down food. I think there's an obligation of that nature written somewhere in the sports writer's official code of conduct. This was just the social association, not work. So we chatted about a number of NHL developments exchanged family news and passed along some bits of gossip. So, That's the end of that section there. That, I might add, though, yeah. that uh, in my usual sailing, I didn't have a sandwich. Well, I did have a sandwich, and I also had some apple pie afterwards, Ooh. which is probably not a good idea when you're between lunch and dinner, you know? Ah, yeah, no, I, <laughs> Why? I, go ahead. Why do hockey writers get fat? <laughs> <laughs> well,
1: I, I, I have to say I, I thought that was an interesting passage for a number of reasons and, and obviously the tightness and the closeness with players and especially I mean in your case with the, the you know, the greatest player of all time. Um and I mean I could go different directions with this. My initially what I wanted to know was, um, you know, given your closeness to the great one, how did things change from nineteen eighty eight when the first blockbuster trade happened to nineteen ninety six in relation to how reporting was done because you had the tv gig by then uh and in 88 you were strictly a print guy i believe right
2: um n- well i don't i don't know it's hard to say the years all rolled together <laughs> i did, i don't think they were doing the hot stove then were they no so i would do occasional uh tv hits you always do but yeah you're right most for the most part yeah you're right yeah as to how it changed um. His relationship with me didn't change because, uh, he was an avid hockey fan and an avid hockey reader, and, uh, he would find out everything that was going on everywhere. And, of course, his dad, with whom he communicated on a daily basis, would always tell him what I had written in Toronto if he hadn't actually seen the globe somewhere. So we always got along very well there, and then we were very close friends for a long, long time and now we're we're friends but we can't be the same It can't be the same as you were with a guy who was single. And you were acting like you were single (laughs) (laughs) as a guy with five kids and retired and everything else. So, uh, you know, we stayed friends after he went to Los Angeles. We stayed friends throughout his career. And uh, he just helped me out with uh, something a little while ago. And uh, he actually offered to write a foreword for this book. And... um, I didn't I didn't pursue it just because I, I don't like to put too many obligations on him and people would call me during those times from radio stations or whatever or some of the things say well, you're really close to Gretzky do you think you could ask him to do this you know and i said no because one of the reasons i'm close to Wayne is that i don't ask him to do things like that we're we're just friends and uh, you know you're going to have to go through and do it yourself if you if you want him i'm not going to impose these kind of things on him and uh, but anyway uh, yeah. we are still Friends, as it were, and he still helped me out, and uh, and I just I just didn't want to ask him again to do the form because I originally did call when when we started doing the book, and I said uh, I don't know. How, I'm just thinking now how did I get in touch with him? I, mean, I I did call him, but he answered the phone. This was the astonishing thing. That was what I'm just thinking. That's what stopped me there in my tracks for a second because usually you do text, and usually if your phone, is phone. it he doesn't answer it you know right. and uh, the, the message thing is full anyway on this case i called and uh he he answered i think he was about ready to tee and i said hey i'm doing a new book uh, like you want to do a forward for it he said absolutely 100 percent. just give me a call when it's ready and i said okay and uh i just assumed that because he had answered the phone he was uh, you know expecting somebody else's call because he just doesn't usually answer it and so that was the end of it when we talked about but that was that was always his approach but then you know months later when the book was actually written I, I just didn't uh, I didn't call him back.
1: Speaking of, of, of Wayne Gretzky um I, when I look back at at, at the hot stove and, and my experience watching it the the first I had ever heard about the fact that he was going to retire was on hot stove and I remember J.D. Uh, mentioning it right at the tail end of that 99 season. My guess is it was about maybe four or five games remaining in the season. And I wanted yeah. to know how that whole situation was handled by the panel, given the fact that you were close to the great one, uh, JD was in New York and close to the great one, and John Shannon was tight with the great one. So, you know, did, was it a, a matter of someone got to say it, but you all knew, or and, and JD got that... Uh, you know got yeah. that okay
2: <laughs> yeah i was keeping quiet and i was surprised that jd said anything if i remember rightly because uh you know we sort of knew it was coming and uh we were just uh been thinking about it you know and he had a he had a really bad back injury if you remember mm-hmm. and um the C6 vertebrae, for those who want to be technical. Mm. But he was out for, what, four months or something? That he, he was out for a long, long time.
0: Yeah, he only played and like 49 he, games. He
2: was getting banged around, and then Gary Suter slammed him into the boards, remember? Because yep. that was during one of the international games, and Suter knew he could get away with it because if it were against the Kings or something, Marty McSorley would have beaten him to a pulp, but uh, <laughs> it was an international game, so he got away with it. And uh, he was just... Uh, you know wearing down and then later on i'm trying to think how much later on it was so scott morrison did a book by that time scott morrison was working for cvc and uh, they were assigning books to him and he was going around he had to go to a whole bunch of hockey players and uh ask them for their greatest moment in hockey and so he and I, Gretz was, at, uh, he had to open some golf course or something somewhere, outside of Toronto. So Scott and I drove down there and had lunch with him, and uh, and Scott asked him that question, said, you know, what was your greatest, one? and he said, the day I retired. And I was I was shocked, I really was, I would have thought, you know, all the things that he did, all the cups that he won, all the trophies, and everything. It would have been something like that and no it was it was the day he retired and uh, so I, I was you know yes i knew that he was thinking of it but i also still had in my mind that he probably wouldn't go through with it ah. so i never said anything and then jd did but that wasn't uncommon for jd to say things that i didn't expect <laughs> <Go> ahead, <mate. laughs>
0: Now, uh, two producers that you hold in high esteem, well, two of, among the producers you hold in high esteem, uh, John Shannon and Shirely Najik. Uh, how did each of them get the best tone of the people that, th- that were facing the camera?
2: John Shannon was, was very demanding, and uh, but he was very fair. The, the military axiom uh, for officers is to be fair, firm, and friendly, and that 's what John was, and you just had such tremendous admiration for John because he was so knowledgeable and he was so highly regarded, not just in Canada but throughout the world the t v world uh, He was the one that the Olympic people called every year to put together or not every year every four years rather to put together their telecast to to put the world feed for hockey out there and uh, he worked hard at it, he was proud of it and he knew the people as you say but he was uh, he was very rigid, rigid in the sense that it was going to be done John's way and that was that and that's why John got fired twice <laughs> in Minnesota and in Calgary when he was working for Hockey Night the first time And uh, but in both cases John was right, I mean, it's just that other people weren't as good as John and couldn't quite see that, couldn't quite accept it, but John wouldn't bend, and he was the same way with the people on the show. You had to do what John wanted, but not in the sense of here, go and say this, but just in the sense of, you know, in in my case, I was supposed to smile, I was supposed to uh, stir things up a little bit, I was supposed to be flipped, uh, supposed to roll my eyes and all these sort of things. Not that he ever said this, but when I start, if I'd done something like this, he would say, that's good, you know, keep doing that sort of thing, you know, and if I didn't something he didn't like, he'd say, don't do that again. And that would be that. And so you had to do it John's way, but really it was your way, it was just that the, the parts of it that John approved of and everything. Well, Shirelli was is much more of a comedian. Like he he has a, a a type of personality that's hard to describe. He he's he's always he can be very funny. He's funny most of the time, and uh, we had the kind of relationship that was just insults back and forth, basically. And um, <laughs> you, you know, he just come at you and you'd go back at him and nobody would get mad. He'd say all kinds of things that probably get you put in jail these days if anybody <laughs> were recording them. And um but he when he wanted something, he would tell you, he would take you aside and say, Look, they gotta do this. You know, you guys have gotta do this and I'm getting some heat and everything and here's the way we've got to approach this and and no screwing around, all right? So say, okay. Yeah, and that was that. So so it was a different approach. I mean, they both really wanted this, uh, the kind of show that they wanted, and they were both determined to get the kind of show that they wanted, but they really had a, a completely different way of, of getting it. It was more, in Chiarelli's case, it was more likely to come along and say, you know, how can you be so stupid? I mean, when you said that, do you realize how dumb you looked? you think maybe it would be a good idea not to do that again? Uh, Something (laughs) like that. Whereas Shannon would say, that was wrong. Don't do that again. You know, so there's that difference. But I, I really appreciated both of them, and they were both a big help to me.
0: Yeah, and I'll always appreciate John Shannon for once complimenting my uh, Minnesota North Stars hat in an elevator because I was just, like, starstruck <laughs> when he was there. and he was Did you like, see hey.
2: the Minnesota North Stars? I don't know, yes, the, Minnesota the reverse Wild, retro. I guess. Oh, retro jersey yes. that they came out with? Yeah. Wow. I mean, I think the Avalanche is the best yeah. by far, but Minnesota is a definite runaway second. That's yeah. a really sharp footer.
1: For sure, yeah. yeah. Se- second and best Minnesota sports team for uniform. Third. Sorry, which was tied for third
0: L?
2: All the others.
0: Yeah. <laughs> Go ahead, Nate. Now, uh, the Hall of Fame, obviously, they have their awards to recognize writers and broadcasters. But what could they be doing to uh, recognize producers, not just the two you talked about, but someone such as Kathy Broderick as well? Because they make the, you know, they turn the lights on, so to speak.
2: Well, I should say, first of all, that I, I don't think the Hall of Fame should be inducting sports writers, that's for sure. Nobody really cares about that, and you're paid to do a, a job. And I don't think anybody, with the exception of the immediate family, goes to the Hall of Fame to look at sports writers' plaques <laughs> and uh but anyway, they do it, and it's, uh, I guess that was the original thing when Red Fisher set it up uh, with Clarence Campbell many, 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 many years ago, and I think Red wanted to go in there himself, which of course he did, <laughs> and uh, so that's where that came from, but as for producers, mm-hmm. well, it's pretty simple, you just put them in, in the Hall of Fame in the Builders category, mm-hmm. and uh, and some of them should be there, Shannon certainly should, and uh Kathy, yeah. I, you know, Kathy does a, a tremendous job behind the scenes and has done it for years, And uh, but they are builders. I think Don Cherry should be in there as a builder, too. I mean, Don Cherry has done more to promote hockey than almost anybody else in the game over the last 20 or 25 years, and just because you don't agree with him or... Uh, some people don't, you're not going to put him in there? I mean, it, what's it for? Is it for the Hockey Hall of Fame for those we agree with or the Hockey Hall of Fame for people who have done things for hockey? I think it should be the latter.
1: Well, speaking of being, you know, frank, which was my next question, I mean, you're very frank about your experiences on Hot Stove. And, um, you know, the whole time hot, you were on Hot Stove, it was on the public broadcaster. So, you, Do you think the league is happier to have... Um, hockey night in canada in the hands of rogers
2: well, it's kind of hard for me to answer that one because i'm not i haven't been really close to the league right. since it went into rogers hands and you know if i were doing the job now that i was doing then I would know for sure (laughs) Um, but really it's it's hard for me to say how the league feels I know that Gary is more liberal than a lot of people give him credit for including me often and uh, he never got involved with what was uh, what was being said and um, you know after I got fired I ran into him somewhere and I said did you get me fired he said no I said, "Well, I thought you meant, you know, one of two people. I thought you were the one." Uh, he said, "If I wanted to get you fired, I would have done it long ago." Right, right. <laughs> Okay. That's, that's a valid point. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, and 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 I asked John, Shannon. I said, "What do you think?" He said, "No." He said cuz John went to work for the league, if you remember, as yes, some yes. sort of vice president in charge of television or yep. something whatever it was yep. called mm-hmm. afterwards and. uh he would sit often with gary and watch the hot stove and gary might smile sometimes and shake his head but he said gary had never ever indicated at any time that he would get involved with the format of hot stove so as for whether gary Feels that uh, he does or does not like Rogers. I I don't think really that that's Gary's concern. I think Gary just wants to make sure that check comes in every month.
1: I, <laughs> I will say uh, I did work at the NHL Network, and when the U.S. started really pushing the envelope and, and pushing you know for bigger presence because it was located in in Scarborough in the in the TSN buildings. Um, I remember the the producer they sent to be hands on. The first thing he said is. You guys make boring TV, and he re- we recorded off the intake, coach's corner, and we played that because, of course, NHL Network was primarily for U.S. fans, but being broadcast out of Canada, and and that was one of the that was pretty much the first thing I remember him doing. Um, so yeah.
2: well, with, with that,
1: well, sorry, go ahead.
2: Gary wants uh, Gary wants some boredom certainly, and. One of my concerns, not just about hot stove or just about hockey, but about the entire newspaper industry, is what has happened to it. And and I think it's a shame, and I think it's a significant loss for all our society, because the newspapers, for as long as anybody looks back in recorded history since Gutenberg invented the press, have been a conscience, and they've been a, a check on the authority figures and they've been a balance and so when governments especially governments but sometimes corporations do things that they shouldn't be doing it was the newspapers who exposed them and how many movies have we seen where somebody is wronged and goes to various functionaries and they all say you're not gonna well, let's go to the newspaper and tell them but now the newspapers don't have that clout anymore and i think it's a shame especially in the entire aspects of our society, not just in sports, but in hockey, the way it has been manifested is that when all these newspapers started cutting back, Gary, or the NHL media, hired a lot of them, a lot of very, very good ones. But they really put The restraints on them. You don't see the kind of articles from those people that you used to see when they were working in the newspapers. Now you see the fluff pieces, the nice Mm -hmm. little features about their wives and family or their dogs or their beards or something or or their, their travails, but you don't see the kind of stuff that you used to see. And so it's the same, I think, you know, NHL media and NHL TV and that, they're all the same. They're all they're going to give you what the NHL head office, i.e. Gary, wants you to see or read and nothing else.
0: Now, I wanted to ask, you know, about being, I guess, a check on yourself, because I think we had a recent guest who said, you know, when she finished her manuscript, she showed it to, like, all the, these people she played with, all these coaches she had. There's no hard and fast rule for someone who's writing a, a nonfiction book, but how do, how do you approach it when you feel like you need to be critical about someone you worked with and it's going to be in a book?
2: Over the years, you learn how far you can go, and you have to remember who you're working for, and it's not the person you're writing about. You try to be fair, and all the years in hockey, I get one or two guys got mad at me, but I, I've often told the story about if you go to a baseball player who's just booted a double play ground ball and you ask him about it, whatever, which you'll shout at, you or the sun got in his eyes when he was looking down or something, whatever the case <laughs> may be. It wasn't his fault. But you ask a hockey player, saying, how can you let that guy go around you? Oh, jeez, he said I was so bad on that. I can't believe it. You know, I was just terrible out there today. And that's that's the difference. So... If you're critical of hockey players, I always found, but you don't ridicule them. You just say, you made a mistake on this play and this is what he should have done, and this is what he did do, they'll accept that. It's not a problem. And similarly with any other aspect of their life, if, if they've made a mistake, they know it, and, and hockey players accept it. So you just have to remember who you're dealing with, whether it's a hockey player or somebody in another sport, and, and you have to be fair. I mean, we all make mistakes, and... Uh, you have to say that it was a mistake, but you don't say, wow, boy, they should have put a pylon on the ice. He would have been better than this stick stick, you know, out there. <laughs> then Now they're going to get mad, and then so they should So you just have to do it in the right way.
1: Al, um, uh, later on in your career, uh, you had the 28-minute work week, and that's when I got to know you. <laughs> um, uh, <laughs> yeah. So,
2: so. That's not counting the 10 minutes of work it was to try and Steal some sense into your ideas. That was <laughs> hey, on top of it. hey, but I was yeah. new then.
1: Okay. Um, um, no, it was actually I will say it was it was a real um, it was a real thrill. I mean, my first sports TV job to you know walk in and you know Steve Koulias walks in and then uh, Steve Ludzik, Mark Osborne, Mark Osborne says hi by the way, and uh, and oh, of course, really? yeah, and and a good and man,
2: Ozzy. I was a nice
1: person, absolutely. And then obviously Al Strachan. and then to work with them was was it was a real real thrill. Um, so I have. I didn't to, abuse you too much. No, no, you guys are great. You guys are great, and I always love going to Gabby's after too. So, um, <laughs> uh, but but in the twenty-eight minute work week, uh, how did you balance not scooping yourself? And I remember this was the whole time during the Tampa Bay, the owners are writing on the chalkboard and that whole controversy. But so, how did you balance not scooping yourself on this? I think it was Tuesdays and Thursdays, or or something yeah. like that before. Before the Saturday, the big, the big, uh, the big tuna on Saturday night is the hot stove, and obviously the score is much smaller in scope. So, how did you balance on not scooping yourself?
2: Primarily, it was the fact that they were different formats, so we didn't break stories really on the on the. 10 minute shootout or what's it called 10 minute misconduct <laughs> we just shouted at each other a lot and talked about the ideas that had been brought forward you know should high sticking be a 5 minute major and all that sort of stuff and so or should it be right. a 2 2 minute all oh, those kind of things so really it never ever overlapped but if. I'd had to make a choice on any occasion, then I would not have used it on the score. The CBC was, I should say, a much bigger audience yeah. and uh, much more money, so you had to, <laughs> you had to pick your, your dog you're going to fight, you know. Right.
0: Now, uh, there's a strong likelihood when the NHL gets started for, I guess, its second uh, pandemic season that there's going to be a temporary all-canadian division i just wanted to ask what you think are the general phenomena uh, that have sort of contributed to why you know no canadian-based team has won the stanley cup since 1993 because i think in the two decades prior i think there were like 13 different stanley cup uh, winners from canada when you count up the canadians uh, oilers and the calgary flames
2: yeah i don't Know that there's any real reason other than just it's a cycle, and uh, we have general managers, and they have general managers, and some are better than others, and I think some Canadians are just as good, and they go back and forth, you know. Like if if Kenny Holland wins a. Stanley Cup in Edmonton. Now, what are we going to say? You know, I mean, he was a Canadian working in the United States. So, I think it just goes in cycles. I, I don't think there's any real reason for it. And, uh, people, for the most part, don't mind playing in Canada, no matter what you might read here or there. Uh, that are good parts of it in that you can know uh, you you're a big star wherever you go but sometimes you don't want to be a big star wherever you go And and yes there's a lot of pressure on you but there's pressure on you anywhere I mean you think about it you're out there and you've got a job that you're getting at least two million a year really you know the average player two million a year it's a lot of, it's a lot of money and every game you're being evaluated and two or three bad games and you won't be getting your 2 million or if you do it's going to end at the end of this year. So when you're living a lifestyle like that there is a lot of pressure on you all the time. So the fact that somebody in some of the larger cities may focus on you and complain about you or something that, it doesn't really matter that much to those guys. It's it's all a part of the job. It's just it's just a peripheral things like being able to go to a restaurant and not be recognized or going to a restaurant and having put up with people motting you and that sort of stuff. And um, I don't really think there's any significant reason that you can put your finger on that says that Canadians aren't winning Stanley Cuts. I mean, Glenn Sather was a general manager in Canada and did win and went to New York and didn't win. So what does that mean?
0: <laughs> yeah, okay, all right. <laughs>
2: it's just, uh, the, it just comes and goes, and it's not inconceivable that and uh, say in the next 10 years, Canada could win five Stanley Cups. Who knows? I'm not suggesting that they will, but it could just as easily happen.
0: Now, And I think your last, uh, you write about this in the book, and your last Hockey Night in Canada appearance, I think you were out front on Winnipeg returning to the NHL almost uh, yeah. two years before it happened. Yeah. Uh, now uh, Seattle is going to give the NHL 32 teams, four, four equal, they can divide into four equal divisions. uh how optimistic? Yeah, that was in the
2: book before that. <laughs> yeah,
0: true. Uh, how how optimistic are you that we'd ever see another new franchise in Canada, particularly? Like, sorry for going on my hobby horse here. A, a second team in Southern Ontario, that sort of thing. Oh,
2: uh, probably not. Really, uh, there's there's no need for it. The Sportsnet. What are they paying? Five point one billion. Is it Five for two, their yeah. Right? Yep. When you've got somebody that's paying that much for the rights, why would you want to bring in more teams that could only dilute it um you know, with it, it, TV is the name of the game these days. I mean, the people in the stands, especially in the COVID era, but even when the when the buildings are full, really, until you get to the playoffs and you're making all that money because you jack the prices up and you're not paying the playoffs, that's when the real bonanza comes in. But um, it it just doesn't make sense, really, from an economic point of view, to put another team into those areas that are already selling out all the time. Right. Why would you do that? All you're doing is, is taking the value away from teams that don't have problems. So it, it's a ruthless way of doing it, but it's a business, and business tends to be ruthless. Quebec had a chance. Uh, there, was, there was some movement starting, uh, you know, what, a year, year and a half, two years or so before that big Sportsnet contract. But then once that came in and now Montreal's got that all locked up and, you know, Quebec wouldn't be a part of it. And so they just lost their chance and the timing was such that it no longer made sense to put Quebec back in the league. So I I don't envision it.
1: Sorry, go ahead. Okay, Al. Sorry. Um, I just wanted to say, um, you know, first of all, this this podcast interview has been great, and it's gone longer than your twenty eight minute work week, so I feel like we owe you a check <laughs> or something. But, but yeah. I do I do want to close out by asking you. Um, uh, and we can follow this if need be, but I want to ask you. I mean, um, and I thought of Walter Cronkite when I when I kind of came up with this question, and that you know he was kind of uh, upset that he retired too early, but. I mean, with with your, you know, you left Hockey Night in October 2010, I believe, but yeah. Twitter has kind of been a way to to give people new life in a sense. So, if Elon Musk refers to Twitter as a war zone in some way, have you been reborn as a war reporter? <laughs>
2: No, I don't think so. I I sometimes wonder if I should just stay off Twitter because it's just astonishing how many monumentally stupid people there are out there. (laughs) And even the ones who aren't monumentally stupid, but just basically stupid and could be informed, it takes time and, you know, to try and do it in whatever number of characters it is, 110 or something. And people say this and they say no no that's not the case and and they they come up with some little direct quote or just some little small part of the story and say there and and you'd like to have a whole 800 word column to explain why they're missing all the important parts and when you put all those important parts in the original statement that you made makes no sense, and so that's the frustrating part is Twitter. So I've been mostly staying off it lately, except for uh, retweeting pictures of dogs. And things like that. <laughs> well, you know, I mean, uh, no one is ever going to make Bruce Arthur sensible, no matter how hard I try. So you, you, I've given that up, too. I think.
1: I mean, you do have close to 10,000 followers, and I, I thought it was really interesting because you adapted to it quite quickly. You know, I, I mean, you talk about in the book or write about in the book how you. You know, you're you know i guess uh, a luddite when it comes to technology but you really seem to uh, to, to embrace twitter um at least early on well, so uh,
2: you didn't see some of the mistakes i made along the way <laughs> i guess you know that, that one time when i answered two questions in one tweet and it looked like i was saying that all libraries should be shut down and that Whoa. wasn't <laughs> the right. Twitter just went crazy, you Letter know. And say no, what's up? I say, right. <laughs> just saying that they should pay authors a bit more is what I'm trying to say well, here. And so once in a while I do screw it up, but it's it's nice to have that many followers. And uh, when I come out with my next book, we'll see how much of an impact that has.
1: Yeah. So this book comes out, I believe, on November thirtieth. And, um, yeah, yeah, Hawk, yeah, Hockey's Hot Stove, uh, the untold stories of the original Insider. So, Al, thank you so much for giving us the time, uh, today to talk about okay. this book and, uh, enjoy your time down in Florida.
2: I will try my best. It's nice and warm. It's been nice and warm down here, and, uh, I uh, don't have an awful lot to do now. I, I have finished the next book, which is a Total, total change of direction. Okay. And uh, I don't know how many of those 10,000 people will be interested in it because it's it's not a hockey book. It's a, a non-fiction book. A mm-hmm. uh, sad but true story of a man who in 1942 was a sergeant in the Royal Air Force cool. and came to Canada to do some training to help train People in the Royal Canadian Air Force, how to handle machine guns so that you didn't shoot the propeller off your plane and things like that. And uh, he went to a dance on a Friday night, June the 5th, 1942. And on June the 7th, 1942, they found the body of a girl. uh, And on June 10th, he was charged with rape and murder. And in December, he was hanged. And he was totally innocent totally okay so I've got all kinds of documentation that never been available previously and uh, the book has been done and uh, it was one of the reasons I was in Malta working out that book because it's going to go in England rather than here because he was in the Royal Air Force Um, and then we're going to see what we can do to get it distributed in Canada maybe through Amazon Canada or something but as I say it's a Total change of approach from the other things I've done. There's no mention whatsoever of hockey in it, but I think it's a fascinating story, and uh, and uh, you can still go and visit his grave in St. Andrews, New Brunswick, if you want, and see the courthouse where he was tried and see the jail cell in which he was kept and uh, see the remains of the airbase where he was working and go out to Black's Harbour and see the girls' tombstone. It's, it's uh, still... A lot of references around and if you ever buy uh, Brunswick sardines you'll notice that they are from uh, that area of New Brunswick and they were started by this girl's grandparents they started that company so it's it's a truly Canadian story in a lot of ways but the Canadian publishers didn't want to have it because they said it involved a British airman the Canadian so anyway that uh, I'll let you know when that one's available, and we can uh, yeah. alter the format of your sure. podcast hey. for we and do hanging stories. Hey, <laughs> you know what?
1: You know what? That sound that sounds uh, like a very very intriguing book. Al, do you care to share the the man's name?
2: Uh, yeah, Thomas Hutchings.
1: Ah, okay. Well, yeah, that, that and is... he left
2: a, a one year old daughter and a wife in England. He was. Uh, Twenty-one years old, and it was it was a real total travesty of, on the Mounties' part, just absolute total travesty of the Mounties, and the New Brunswick Bar Association, and just society in New Brunswick generally. In those days, it, it really uh, event basically they murdered this guy, and he didn't kill anybody.
1: Wow. So. Well, we have certainly never had an ending like that to a Sports Lit episode, so... Um, <laughs> I
2: guess not. But that, well, you never know what you're going to get from me, Neil, do you? Uh,
1: no, no, we never do, and, and we, but we, we know what we got today, and it was excellent, and uh, an excellent conversation uh, with you, Al, so thank you for your time.
2: Okay, well, thanks for thinking of me. Okay, thank you.
0: Great.